0: So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Now, we are in the middle of an ongoing series called Wind and Rain. And we've been asking ourselves, as we have studied this amazing book in the New Testament called the Book of Acts, we've been asking ourselves, what would it look like if the wind of God's Spirit, the power of God's presence and action, We're to actually blow through and to and in our lives in such a way that the reign of God really takes place in every human heart. Now, so far in this series, what we have noticed is this. After the resurrection of Jesus, for 40 days, Jesus appeared to the disciples, to his followers, to prove that he is alive. And he said, now I want you to wait for me. But wait for the Spirit to come. You will be empowered. And then on the day of uh, Pentecost, on the festival of Shavuot, they experienced the coming of the Lord through the Spirit. So there was this empowering, this infusion of God's presence and God's action in the lives of seemingly weak, unqualified individuals. I mean, the Spirit, we're told in Acts chapter 2, was poured out on all flesh, it was, a, it was a quote from the, the, the prophet Joel in the Hebrew Bible that in the days to come, the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, women and men, young and old, rich and poor, uh, educated and uneducated, and, and did it ever. In fact, it, it was poured out in such a way that these individuals who followed Christ found themselves saying things and doing things that they had only seen seen him do before. They were performing acts of wonder. They were bringing the power of God's healing touch to people who hurt. They were welcoming in the stranger, caring for the widow and orphan. They were sharing all of what they had as powerful gifts to be shared among the community so that no one was neglected and no one was overlooked. There was in them the very real presence and action of God. And everything they saw in him, they were experiencing in themselves. But now we, we move to a, a particular part of the scripture where we begin to feel some tension between this new movement of followers of Jesus that had been growing to like 5,000 members just in a matter of days, this tension between this new movement and religious authorities And we pick up this this pattern in verse 17 of Acts chapter 5. Now listen, here's the disclaimer for today. The disclaimer for today's sermon, besides our audio technical challenges today, you're going to get a lot of Bible. I'm talking about we will be swimming neck deep in Scripture. I hope you brought your floaties. We are going to be... All in, so hold on to the handlebars, put your seatbelts on, beginning in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Then the high priest took action. He and all who were with him, that is the sect of the Sadducees, being filled with jealousy, arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But but during the night. An angel of the Lord appeared to the prison doors, or opened the prison doors, brought them out, and said, Go, stand in the temple, and tell the people the whole story, the whole message about this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, and they went on with their teaching. When the high priest and those with him arrived, they called together the council and and the whole body of the elders of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But, but when the temple police went there, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were perplexed about them wondering what might be going on. Then someone arrived and announced, "'Look, the men whom you put in prison "'are standing in the temple and teaching the people.'" Then the captain went with them and the temple police, and they brought them, but without violence, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, "We, "'We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, "'and here you are.'" You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you and you have determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than human authorities. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him and gave at his right hand and... Uh, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so the Holy Spirit is whom God has given to us to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. But, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel "'A teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up "'and ordered the men to be put outside for a short while. And "'Then he said to them, fellow Israelites, "'consider carefully what you propose to do to these men.' "'For some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, "'remember him? "'And a number of men, about 400, joined him, "'but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, "'and they disappeared.' After him, uh, Judas the Galilean, remember him, rose up and at the time of the census and got people to follow him, and he also perished. And, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and, and let them alone, because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is not, if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. They were convinced by him. And and when they had called the apostles, they, they had them flogged, which is a simple word in our language. But in Greek, it means skinned, beaten to the point that your skin and flesh begin to deteriorate, fall off from your body. They had them flogged, and then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go, and as they left, as they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. They rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. This morning, for just a moment or two, I want to talk about what that means. What does it mean to be considered worthy to suffer worthy to suffer dishonor, shame, ill repute because of the name. Let's offer a word of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we pray that you would now bless the words that proceed from my mouth so that in hearing we may never be the same. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So now we've moved into a new section of the book of Acts. So far the foundation has been laid. Now the movement is underway. They're gaining momentum. So much momentum that there is now tension between those who are in the movement and feeling this this infusion of God's power and love and compassion and mercy between them and the religious authorities and even secular authorities of the day. So you're beginning to see a pushback, not only here with the arrest and the imprisonment and the release and the flogging of those who believed, But in a few chapters, you're going to meet Stephen, who is the first martyr of the church, who proclaimed the whole story of how this is where this whole thing has been going from the beginning of time. And they stoned him, and there is record of mid-stoning. His face was so fixed upon heaven that it looked as if he had the face of an angel. And a persecution began to take place. Soon thereafter, James, the brother of John, was beheaded, executed for what he proclaimed and for what he refused to cease proclaiming that in this person Jesus was the face of God and that you and I and all can be liberated from our sin and our decay by yielding to him. Paul, even, in the New Testament, it continues on that Paul, the apostle, no less than five times was flogged, beaten to an inch of his life and persecution wave after wave under Nero and then the Diocletian persecution in which whole families who believed would be marched out in the middle of the village and beaten, tortured, hanged, drowned, burned alive, and there is record of those who believe being burned at the stake, singing hymns as they burned, because they counted it a miracle that they would be considered worthy to suffer dishonor because of this name. Well, long after the persecution's began to subside. Around 325, a great council was called of all the bishops and pastors and deacons of all the churches in the known world. They were called together in order to, well, work out their salvation in fear and trembling, to work out big theological questions like, who was this guy? Was he God or was he a man? And was he a little bit of both? Was he 50-50 or 100%, 100%? Because that's not good math. And they began to struggle and work out, what does it mean to worship a triune God. So at Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea, all of these bishops and all of these pastors and deacons gathered and the historian's account is that hardly one of them was in attendance without a missing eye, a lopped off ear, a missing limb, mangled and disfigured hands and fingers because they had gone through the ordeal of having been persecuted, of having been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. Making the words of the early church father Tertullian ring true that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's a far cry, isn't it, from getting ready for Sunday school this morning. Yeah. What does it mean To live a life that is worthy of suffering. And why would they do it? One of the most convincing proofs of the resurrection of Christ is that you don't die for something you halfway believe in. You're not willing to watch your sons and daughters die because of a conviction you have that you can take or leave. They believed because they had encountered something in Christ that they had never experienced before. They found in him the presence and action of a loving God who refused to give up on humankind, who was so determined to save humankind from humankind's own self-destruction that that God was willing to suffer himself. Now, in the New Testament, there are all kinds of references from the Hebrew Bible that the New Testament writers pulled forward. We borrowed some Hebrew Bible texts, you know, along the way. Thanks, So, right? And we pulled them forward to say, if you want to understand what we think was happening in Jesus, well, think about it the way this prophet spoke. And think about it the way this prophet proclaimed. And one of the most beautiful expressions, in my opinion to describe what was happening in the person of Jesus comes from the book of Isaiah, a passage that we refer to as the suffering servant. I want to read a passage of that from that amazing chapter, chapter 33, beginning in verse 3. So the early Christians, they understood that if you really want to understand what was happening in the mystery of Christ, this is what we saw in him. He was despised and rejected by others. A man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity and as one from whom others hid or hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he... Was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that was made or that made us whole. And by his bruises we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that before its shearers is silent so he did not open his mouth by a perversion of justice he was taken away who could have imagined his future then the early followers said we could We we could imagine his future because we have seen it unfold. We saw him led like a sheep to slaughter. We saw him arrested. He was suffering and he was crucified. He died, but we have seen his future. Yes, we can imagine it because it's resurrection. They had seen in him everything that you could do to a mortal being. He was crushed to earth, and yet on the third day was raised to newness of life. And they believed because they saw him again and again. But for them, it wasn't simply that God vindicated Jesus, the Galilean carpenter who was crucified and raised. It wasn't just that God was vindicating Jesus by raising him. They knew something true about resurrection, that when he was raised, we were raised. All of us raised to newness of life and not just right here and now but eternally and they recognized that the resurrection was not some magic trick not something that was simply happening in the person of Jesus but they were now encountering a never before known inner aliveness that changed everything about existence itself they were forgiven and they were forgiving their relationships were restored. They experienced reconciliation with one another and with God, and they they felt coursing through them the presence and action of God to the extent that no one had any needs among them because when you're in the company of this kind of God, we we care for one another and notice in one another. We see one another, and they experienced resurrection. This is why in the New Testament you hear. Language like, I am crucified with Christ. See, they were willing to suffer every kind of indignity, these first Christians, because they knew that that is how God got to us, by suffering indignity. But they also knew that he didn't just suffer indignity and shame, but that story ended with resurrection and so would theirs. So we have the Apostle Paul who wrote, a bunch of the New Testament, who basically says, like in Philippians, these words. He says, "I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, and and the sharing of His sufferings by becoming like Him in His death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, I want to know Him so so closely." that I'm willing to experience the kind of death to self so that I might be able to experience resurrection that can only come through him. He also speaks in 2 Corinthians, he offers these words, for just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant, to be sure, they're abundant for us, so also our consolation. Is abundant through Christ. Inasmuch as we are willing to yield ourselves and sacrifice ourselves and suffer on the name and for the name and through the name of Jesus, we will also experience the abundance of grace and life because of it. Or we read in Romans these words. I consider it that the present sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory about to be revealed in us, or maybe most beautifully in Galatians chapter two. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Why in the world would they consider it a celebration to suffer? Why would they rejoice in being considered worthy to suffer for this name? Because they knew that Christ-like suffering leads to Christ-like resurrection. The degree to which we are willing to suffer for the name, to suffer with the name, to suffer by the name, is the degree to which we will experience the resurrection that comes with the name. I want to talk for just a moment about that kind of suffering. Now, it's easy to talk about suffering when you're not suffering. And the kind of suffering that I'm describing, the kind of suffering <laughs> that I'm describing here, well, it's it's not an inconvenience, it's true suffering. Maybe the disclaimer that I need to put out from the the pulpit here is this. You don't have to go looking for suffering. Suffering will find you. Count on it. But in Christ, the suffering is redeemed, is made right. And there are different kinds of suffering too, aren't there? I mean, there are some kinds of suffering that comes because of our sins, I mean, sometimes we just live out the consequences of making poor decisions and sinning and crossing boundaries. If, if I choose to be unfaithful in my relationship, well, then I will suffer the due penalty of that unfaithfulness, right? Not like God is punishing, because God doesn't do that. We're told that I came not to condemn the world, but through him the, the world might be saved, right? But rather, there are sometimes just pen- If I text while I drive, my chances of having an accident increase and then that accident will produce a kind of suffering mostly physical but maybe depending on how big the loss it could be emotional suffering for a long time but even still the mistakes we make the sins that we commit we're not left to stay in our shame or our guilt about them because in Christ we are forgiven for them we're told in 1 John 1 9 all who confess. He is faithful and just and willing to uh, cleanse us of all unrighteousness, to forgive us and cleanse us of each and every sin. And there's another kind of suffering that I'm not talking about today, right? So I'm not talking about the suffering that comes from just our sins, and I'm not talking about the kind of suffering that comes from just being human. I mean, there's a kind of suffering that comes just because we are human beings and our bodies are made of carbon. (laughs) That means we get sick and we grow old and we die and there is suffering along the way and we live in a world that is broken and vexed by injustices that create oppressions for whole groups of people and living in a world of brokenness, there is a kind of suffering that comes with it. But even then in Christ, that kind of suffering can be redeemed because in some ways suffering forges something in us purifies something in us that makes us stronger than we would have been had we not gone through the thing, had we not lost the house, had we not gone through the divorce, had we not lost that client and changed jobs. If we hadn't gone through the suffering, we might not become who God has intended us to become. So there's this other story, the guy who Paul, keep talking about him a lot, who he has what he calls a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it means whether it was a physical ailment or psychological um, disorder, a, a kind of emotional problem, we don't know. But he said he's got this thing in his life that he can't get rid of. He can't seem to shake it. And in not being able to shake it, he begs God again and again and again, take this thing away from me because if you take it away from me, I'll be way more effective. I'll be a much more powerful preacher. I'll be able to spread this word. Take this away from me. But instead of taking it away, God left it there, and he heard the voice of Christ say, My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul said, well, in in that case, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the, the strength of Christ may be made visible in my physical body. Because sometimes when we suffer, it creates a dependency on the grace of God that maybe otherwise we thought we might be able to make on our own but that's not the kind of grace or kind of suffering I'm talking about either. The kind of suffering I'm talking about here in the book of Acts that would make someone willing to go all the way to the loss of life to prove is is the kind of suffering that is associated with your union with Christ. That your association with Christ can cause a particular kind of suffering. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you truly walk with Christ and the Christ of God is alive in you, that means in time there is a transformation that takes place and you begin to see the world not through your own eyes but through the eyes of the Christ who is alive in you. That means you begin to view and do your life radically different. It means you make choices that he would have made. It means that you go where he would have gone. You love who he would have loved. You you share. You welcome who he would have welcomed. All in his name. And, and you can be sure that if you're in Christ, you're going to parent differently. You're going to do your marriage differently. You're going to spend your money differently. You're going to make choices to absorb some behaviors and some choices to avoid others. And as long as you do that, as long as you are a friend to these. As long as you are an advocate for those, as long as you do what Jesus did, which is bring from the margins all those in culture and society who are forgotten and bring them to the center of the consciousness of people, as long as you do those things, you will be rejected. I mean, at best, you'll be rejected. At worst, you'll be reviled, hated, despised, and maybe even Persecuted. Now, this pastor has a pet peeve. I get really frustrated with how loosely American Christians throw around the word persecution. Sometimes what passes as being persecuted is really not about being persecuted. It's not about persecution, it's about inconvenience. Because for a very long time, the Christian church was in charge, had power, had control in the systems of society, and now in this post-Christian era, we have lost a, a kind of control, lost a kind of power or influence in society, and we are grieving the loss of those things, but really we have not lost any liberty to practice our faith. We have lost convenience. Now, if you want to talk about true persecution in the world where the church, Christians, are persecuted, go to North Korea. Go to Afghanistan, go to Pakistan, go to parts of India, go to Yemen, go to Eritrea, go to Nigeria, go to Iran, where if you confess Christ as the Lord of the universe, you can be killed. If you attempt to worship privately in your own home with others who think that he is the way, the truth, the life, you can be killed. And ironically, the places in the world where the church is the most alive where resurrection is the most vibrant, where the church is growing the most, are in the places where you suffer for practicing your faith. That there is a direct proportional relationship between the degree to which you suffer and the degree to which resurrection is real. You don't really need to resurrect if you don't feel much of a death. So so there is a difference between inconvenience and persecution. but Somewhere along the way, somewhere, sometime, somebody will be offended by what you say, do, think, and react because of Christ. You can take a stand about something that you believe Christ has given you this conviction over, and people can revile you, reject you. (laughs) Believe me. All right? You can preach what you believe is the the message of Christ and still be rejected. There will be some degree of suffering, but count it all joy. Count it all joy. This is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he said, count on this happening. Matthew chapter 5, he said these words, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Now, this is why in the book of Acts, there are prison stories, arrest stories. See, don't forget that the book of Acts is a is a part two to a two-volume work, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts. So Luke, Acts, part one, part two. And the way Luke describes the events of the first century church, he chooses to use language, oh, this is so good, he uses language in the book of Acts that is meant to mirror similar stories in the life of Jesus that you find in the book of Luke, especially around imprisonment. Where they're thrown into the prison tomb. Where the doors of the prison fling open, stone rolls away. Where prison guards fall like dead men, they're summarily executed for dereliction of duty. There is this parallel. Do you mind if I just show you one or two places where in the gospel, here's a very familiar passage. It's the story of the resurrection, five verses. But pay attention to the language. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen now. If you take. The same story we read just a moment ago about the apostles being arrested. And you match the language of their arrest, their torture, their imprisonment, then their liberation to what I just read from the gospel. Well, check out what happened to the apostles. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and went on with their teaching. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb. "'When the high priest and those with him arrived, "'they called together the council "'and the whole body of elders of Israel "'and sent to the prison to have them brought. "'They came to the tomb, "'taking the spices they had prepared. "'But when the temple police went there, "'they they did not find them in prison, "'so they returned and reported, "'We found the prison securely locked "'and the guards standing at the doors, "'but when we opened them, we found no one inside. "'They found the stone rolled away from the tomb.' But when they went in, they did not find the body. And now when the captain of the temple uh, and the chief priests heard the words, they were perplexed about them, wondering, "What, what might be going on? Then someone arrived and announced, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. While they were perplexed, same words about this. Suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. What Luke is doing in the book of Acts is attempting to encourage those first followers that there will be days when suffering will come upon you because of this name. and When you choose to follow in such a way that it transforms your life, you will endure some level of persecution. But when you do, whatever the imprisonment is that you, that you experience, physical, mental, emotional, religious, whatever it is that you experience, know that resurrection is on the way. He tells the prison stories as resurrection. It even gets better in the other two prison stories that take place in chapter 12 and 16. In chapter 12, Peter is shown with his hands in chains. In chapter 16, his feet are shackled with, uh, with chains to the wall. In chapter 12, well, he falls asleep between two guards, not unlike Jesus on the cross between two thieves. In chapter 16, there's an earthquake that shakes the foundations and the prison door flings open, not unlike the earthquake at the resurrection of Jesus where Jesus himself, our Lord, was liberated from the incarceration of death itself. And in chapter 12, in chapter 12, there's a, there's a moment when even the two guards who were supposed to be guarding the apostles Well, when the apostles escaped, they were put to death, not unlike the two guards at the tomb of Jesus who were found like dead men at the tomb. And Paul, Luke, is saying, you are resurrection people. That resurrection is available to everyone who chooses to follow this one. And, And just in case you forget that greater is he, who is in you than he who is in the world. Just in case you forget, he tells stories of resurrection in the book of Acts to remind you, you are resurrection people. Just in case you forget and look out around the world and you see a world in decay crumbling in on itself and you fear the undoing of every fabric of the society we've built. Just in case you forget that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. He tells these resurrection stories. And just in case you forget that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ. In case you forget that, every story he tells in the book of Acts is a reminder that you can be raised up even now.